0: Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me, to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm gonna delve into the details of their journey along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today and as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire they're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to Ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at ceincanada.com. At that is CEO at REIN Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. I sat down with my guest today, Chad Griffiths, a while back to talk real estate. Chad is a partner with NAI Commercial Real Estate and focuses on the greater Edmonton area. He entered the industry in 2004 and has completed over 500 commercial transactions with clients ranging from small local companies to large institutional owners. Chad has been a top 15 producer Canada-wide since 2013. And in this episode, Chad shares his journey to being a top performer in the commercial real estate space. We touch on early views of the impact of COVID on commercial real estate today and where it may take that segment of the industry in the future. Chad's in the trenches experience is supported by extensive academic background and work within the community. He is active as a volunteer in the real estate and business community and has previously served as chair and board member of the Real Estate Council of Alberta, RECA board member of NEIOP Edmonton, president of the Southside Edmonton Business Association, and member of the City of Edmonton-Strathcona Junction Advisory Committee. He is currently on the University of Alberta's Practice of Commercial Real Estate Course Academy Committee. Chad holds a diploma in urban land economics from UBC, a master's certificate in supply chain management from MSU, and the highly coveted SIOR and CCIM designations. Chad also earned his bachelor's degree and a graduate diploma in business administration from Thompson Rivers University. Wow, now there's some credentials for you. So listen in as Chad and I discuss a wide range of topics, and let's get started. Chad Griffiths, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire podcast. So great for you to be able to join us on the show. Welcome.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on, Patrick.
0: Now, Chad, you're located in uh, Edmonton, and that's cool. And for the listeners, why don't we get started by first saying, "What do you do? Who the hell is Chad Griffiths? talk, talk to me about you.
1: yeah, so i'm I'm a born and raised uh, Edmontonian. I actually just turned forty a couple of weeks ago and I've spent all forty years in Edmonton. Uh, I've been a commercial real estate broker for the last fifteen years or so focusing mostly on industrial real estate, but I've also done a little bit of suburban office and and some investment properties along the way as well.
0: Well, happy belated birthday. Yeah. You know, 40 is a kind of milestone. Hey, listen, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a fundamental data that says that our top money earning years are uh, between 40 and 50. Uh, I don't know if that's true, but anyways, that's what I'm told. So you're, you're about to launch, man. That's at the end of the day. You're going to do well. 40 is the magic number.
1: Oh, let's hope so. Thanks.
0: Yeah. So tell me what's going on in Edmonton in that commercial space. Now, as we sit here today, we're, you know, well into COVID and um lots going on in Edmonton in terms of uh aside from what's happening economically, there's also, you know, we're wearing masks, we're still there's still some lockdown stuff going on. But tell me what's going on in the uh commercial space. Now, are you primarily focused on light industrial or office? You know, did I hear industrial in in, in all of that?
1: Yeah, mostly industrial. So I'd be working a lot with manufacturing companies and logistics companies, whether they're looking for uh, manufacturing space or or uh, just warehousing for logistics. Uh, that'd be the majority of what I do. Uh, and I think if, if we actually look at the economy right now, we can even back up. Pre-COVID, because I, uh, Alberta and Edmonton specifically has definitely been struggling over the last five or six years uh, with depressed oil prices, just general uncertainty there. Uh, we've we've had a we've had a tough five or six years, uh, and and I think there's a lot of optimism going into 2020 that things were finally starting to look more positive. Uh, Trans Mountain was going forward. There was hope that uh, Keystone was gonna go. Uh, There's a renewed optimism coming into 2020 that uh, this was gonna be the year that the commercial real estate market exited out of this uh, prolonged recession that we're in. Uh, and then fast forward to March when the NHL shut down and the NBA shut down and schools closed, the government forced businesses to actually close down uh, that weren't essential. Uh, and all that optimism quickly dwindled away as we got into the spring. Uh, to to your point, uh, it, things have changed quickly in a matter of four or five months now. Uh, there There wasn't a game plan on how to handle a once in a century pandemic. So a lot of the things that have happened have just been reactionary. Uh, Banks have deferred mortgage payments, so that's kept some property owners solvent. Uh, The government has given considerable stimulus packages, which included uh, small business loans, uh, rent assistance programs, wage subsidies, uh, and then interest rates are also at an all-time low. So the, what I keep referring to this as is, is really just a fake economy. I, I don't think that this actually is an economy grounded in any semblance of reality. I think that this is propped up entirely by that government stimulus, the bank deferrals, and the interest rates. And the interest rates could stay low for a while still, at least in the medium term. Uh, but the, the government stimulus and the uh, debt deferrals, that, that's going to end at some point here. We can't just keep uh, printing money and def- and kicking the can down the road. Uh, that's going to have to resume in the fall. So I, th- I think the, the government and the banks have, have done a good job of keeping the, the economy as a whole from collapsing. But my concern is what happens in the fall once all that dries up.
0: I think, yeah, I think you've nailed it. This really is a, a bit of a fake economy, not a bit, a lot of a fake economy. And and like you, I've been uh, talking and saying to real estate investors that, you know, the, the high that many are riding, at least in the residential market, is... Uh, Right now, if you're a real estate investor and you got dogs, depending on when you when I release this podcast, but ultimately, you should be really considering selling into this market. Now, not as much in Alberta on the residential side. The market is not as hot. And, and uh, to your point, uh, Alberta has been struggling overall for the past five years. So residential prices are quite depressed anyways, if I don't know if depressed is the right word. And then certainly there are price points that are very, very strong. I know in Edmonton on the residential, and I don't know how much you pay attention to residential, but there's certain price points that are still quite active and there's even multiple offers on the right, on the right priced property. And, um, but to your point around the, the, uh, fake economy, it's, it's really is our GDP. They're talking about GDP growth, but it's, it's really government driven GDP, which is never healthy. So, uh, because it's not sustainable, but, uh, let, and we can talk uh, economy. I'm, actually i can get really really passionate and fired up about economy so we may want to go there but tell me a little bit about what's going on in in the space that you play in i mean you're you're award winning you've you've accomplished a lot in your uh, your many years as young as you are but tell me a little bit about what's going on in the space you're playing right in right now is it is it a struggle is there deals out there is what you know what should if you're looking at it from an investor perspective what should people be looking for or expecting or kind of what's your view of the world right now
1: yeah i i think the the most important thing any potential investor can do is is look at it from a micro perspective so if we we can certainly get back to talking about uh the macroeconomic scale which i love talking about as well we we could get to that later uh but i think any investor looking specifically at Edmonton, or even if they're just looking specifically at a, an asset class in commercial real estate is to look very micro. And, and by that, I mean, just very specific to the area that they want to invest in. There's a lot of negative news that's uh, percolated over the last five years about Alberta in general, and, and just how our economy has been hit by the, uh, the oil recession. Uh, but if you actually start looking at certain areas, there's some areas that have done poorly, and there's other areas that I've actually done quite well. Uh, And I think if we actually differentiate the asset classes, that gives a little bit more insight into it. Uh, So the main asset classes for commercial would be retail, office, and industrial. And over the past four months or so, I'd say retail has been hit the hardest. And intuitively, I think that would make sense to a lot of people. If if the government has forced non-essential businesses to actually close their doors, it's hard for them to generate any revenue, which in turn can be used to pay rent. So uh, retail has definitely been hit the hardest. Uh, but when we look at, at Edmonton, our, our retail vacancy rate was still around 3% pre-COVID. So 3% vacancy rate is actually really low comparatively across North America. So even if we do have an uptick in vacancy rate as some of those companies that were struggling to hold on even pre-COVID, uh, there, I, I suspect that there will be a lot of companies that just don't make it through this. Even if we do see some bankruptcies and the, and the vacancy rate doubles, to call it 6%, that's still a pretty competitive retail vacancy rate across North America. So uh, if it doubles, that's that's a hard shock to the system. And I think a, pe- a lot of people that weren't prepared for that will, will have that sticker shock. Uh, but I still think that that's actually a healthy retail vacancy rate. Uh, office is going to be an interesting one uh, because a lot of people still haven't even gone back to the office yet. Uh, there's concerns about the social distancing and how you handle it with elevators and and everybody clustered together in small areas. So there's been a lot of apprehension from uh, a, a lot of bigger companies, particularly to have their workforce even come back into the office. Uh, and you hear about that in the States, with companies like Twitter that that's saying that their employees can now work from home forever if they want uh, so there's there's some of that news that starts perforating into people's minds, and they think that the office market's going to implode. Uh, I, I take a bit of an opposite approach to that. I, I think that, uh, and myself, I'm a, I'm a good example of this. I have worked a, a lot from home over the past few months as well, and I actually really enjoy being at the office. I actually miss the camaraderie and the collaboration and the, the increased productivity that I have when I'm in a place designated exclusively for work. Uh, as opposed to being at home and all the distractions that come with that. Uh, And I also think that that companies are going to want to have more space going forward so that they can accommodate more distancing between everyone. Uh, I remember hearing a stat uh, a few years ago, and they compared the, the oil industry to the finance industry on how much space those two industries used on average per employee. Uh, And they used uh, TD uh, as an example for the finance sector and they used Synovus for the oil and gas sector. Uh, And Synovus used on average 400 square feet per employee and TD used around 120 square feet per employee. So if the finance sector is cramming that many people into it, that's going to be very difficult to get everybody back into that space. But I think that there's still going to be an appetite to have people come to work for the reasons that I mentioned about productivity and collaboration. So I, what I can see happening is those companies that were on that lower end of the spectrum of cramming people into spaces will actually require more space. So even if there are some companies that require, that decide to let employees work from home, I think they'll actually be offset by the companies that also just increase the amount of square footage that they have. Uh, I, I could see a, a shift away from that open concept office, uh, which uh, a lot of the supporters of that system believed was was for increased collaboration uh, and there's actually studies that suggest otherwise but open concept office really crammed people together and i can see a, a shift towards that more traditional office format where where everyone has uh, their own individual office or at least more space so I, i'm i'm not convinced that there's an office apocalypse uh, as some, Pundits are saying, uh, I I think that office will return back to normal. Uh, I I just don't know when is is a vaccine going to be what triggers it? Is it going to be people just getting comfortable with accepting some element of risk? Uh, Is it going to be next year? I I don't have a a crystal clear idea on how quickly office returns. Uh, So that that's probably the one that has the most immediate risk in the in the near future, anyways. Uh, And then industrial, I I think, is actually uh, going to outperform uh, both office and retail Uh, just for no other reason than things are going to continue to be made and things are continued going to need to be stored in a warehouse. So from a manufacturing standpoint and a logistics standpoint, I expect industrial to hold up relatively well throughout this. Uh, and I think that it has uh, all the research that that I do on a regular basis, and just talking to to clients. and And I, I own a little bit of industrial real estate uh, myself, as a as a full disclosure. Uh, I, I'm optimistic on that asset class. I, I think that that will be the one that weathers this storm the best.
0: You know, you've brought up a, a lot of really great points in this, and so I got a couple of different points of entry, but. Let's go back a little bit to I, I can't recall the book I read, and and I'll and I'll make a maybe some show notes around it if it comes to my mind. But back to that open office concept is interesting. Is is that the open office concept? To your point, was all about collaboration and and you know being together and sharing ideas and all the rest of it. But to your point, research has shown that the open office concept is actually not all that effective and a lot of that, the reason it's not effective, some of the reason, I shouldn't say a lot because I can't, I don't want to try and quantify it. But the point is, is that, you know, the individuals who, who like to have those conversation and be creative, they do that, but then there's an execution part of it. Number one is how do you take, how do you stop that? And so, and then you're walking into open office environments. So what are they doing? Everybody's got a headset in and everybody got their earbuds in because they don't want to be disturbed. And then you've got the, a number of introverts who actually don't, are not productive in that environment and they actually need to get the hell out of that environment in order for them to even be creative for them to even be productive so there's a a lot of uh, to your point there's a lot of uh, argument a very strong argument for that uh, open office concept being shut down so which is interesting Uh, let's go back to that open office concept in terms of space oil and gas industry is infamous i mean all you have to do is go to uh what is it, Enron building in in Calgary. I mean, it's a a behemoth. You know, they're, they're writing checks and, you know, wide open spaces and big spaces. And, you know, here it sits, you know, quite empty, lots of empty office space in Calgary, for example. I know that in Edmonton, of course, we're not, we don't have that same, the same degree of that happening. What's your thoughts in terms of location of downtown used to be a place for those, you know, those offices to be, you know, everybody wanted to be, Cool and hip, and be downtown and walk to work, or be on rapid transit, and and do all the things that come with you know being in the center of the universe in a downtown core. I can't help but think that number one, people are working from home more now. Whether that's five days a week or two days a week, you know there there's lots of flexibility happening there. Do you do you? What's your thoughts in terms of office when you look into the future, uh, Chad? With offices being maybe moved out to more into a suburban type of environment and a suburban area, do you, you know what's your thoughts on that that possibility?
1: Yeah, I, I think that there has been growth in those suburban office markets where developers have have tried enticing large tenants into the suburbs with similar types of buildings, like Class A type style buildings with lots of amenities in the area. So I, I think that that's been a trend that's that's gone on for for a while now. Uh, to your point about working from home, uh, I, I think a lot of people probably do want to work from home if their work when they're there is, is in an open concept. Uh, I know that if I was in an open concept work environment and I had the ability to work from home and I hated working in an open concept, well, of course I'm going to choose to work from home. Uh, so I, I think that, that that will play off each other where I think that... For companies that want to get their employees back into the office, I think that there will have to be some change to to entice them back. Uh, I I think what was clear over the past few months is that a lot of work can actually be done from home. Uh, But that's not to necessarily mean that the work is done productively or it's done uh, as well as it could be with an environment of collaboration. And I think companies will realize that. I think that they will try to entice uh, employees back. Uh, whether that's changing the open concept uh, altogether or making modifications to it uh, I don't know if if there will necessarily be a a seismic shift between downtown and suburban markets as as they both offer something distinct uh, suburban office uh, traditionally people will have lower commute times uh, they'll have less traffic they have to contend with but the trade-off is that you're you're gonna have less amenities. Uh, if you take transit, it's going to be more difficult to get into those suburban areas versus uh, a central business district, which will typically have everything come to it. Uh, and then there's there, there's a lot of collaboration that happens in those downtown areas as well. Uh, if if a company's dealing regularly with a law firm or an accounting firm or engineers, and they they, they can walk over to the building to deal with them, uh, and have a quick meeting versus having to drive all the way across town. Uh, there's unquestionably efficiencies that come with that as well. Uh, so I, I, there there will be companies that choose to be in the suburbs, and there'll be companies that choose to be downtown. Uh, I, I think it'll just be interesting to see how the internal uh, uh, setup of those offices changes, uh, as, as opposed to necessarily a big shift from one area to the other.
0: You know, you make, you know, there's a couple things around this that uh, we're going to find interesting. You know, uh, I know in Toronto, for example, I'll use Toronto as an example because, of course, their downtown core is, you know, the the significant downtown core of Canada, as well as their transit system. And what's happening in, as we speak today, what's happening in Toronto is people don't want to ride public transit now in Edmonton of course as much as they've got public transit it's not as much what just insights I haven't actually had a conversation with anybody about what's happening with public transit in Edmonton are they noticing a decrease is there yet do you have any insights into that because I I literally have not had a conversation with anybody Chad
1: yeah I I don't have much insight into it either uh, either except for the fact that uh, the city gave free transit for a period of time uh, so uh, those, those numbers would be Distorted heavily by yeah. the fact that uh, people were riding for free, so uh, I, I will probably need a period of time where people start paying again, and and you can compare that to a, a period from last year over a trend line to, to get a better idea of it. Uh, but everything was up in the air with transit with COVID and and the city giving it away for free essentially.
0: Yeah, there's a it's an interesting time in that residential space because in some of the downtown cores and and I'm talking primarily Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto for example because of population and density is people are uh, really backing off in terms of wanting to do transit in, you know, downtown cores and because of the proximity and and the whole fear around COVID and what that could mean being in that space. So, you know, we're actually seeing, it. I don't know if it's a trend yet, but there's certainly a propensity for people wanting to actually move into the suburban area. You look in Vancouver, Toronto, and we'll get back to commercial, but when you look in Vancouver and Toronto, even condos are starting to soften slightly because they're saying, I'm going to be working from home two, three days a week, five days a week, whatever that might be. You know, why do I want to exist in a, you know, a 600 square foot or even, you know, 900 square foot condo? try and be on the phone or be on a zoom call at the same time as my significant other, who is also working from home, you know, pay, you know, a thousand bucks a foot or 1500 bucks a foot for this space. When I go to suburban and have a home and uh, I'll commute when I need to. And because it's okay, but I need the space and I get way more bang for my buck and I have a backyard. So those things are starting to, to show up, you know, where we're going urban, suburban, and then even rural we're starting to see the urban demand to, to pick up, which is just a real interesting kind of uh, phenomenon that's happening because of COVID. But when we go back to the commercial space and, and we look at office space, for example, and then industrial, you know, you you make a really good point. And this is something that I've been kind of pondering and contemplating, which is, you know, manufacturing we could see in Canada, for example, an actual uptick in in manufacturing. I think as borders continue, we don't know how long borders are going to be, you know, continue to be shut down. We're going to see supply chains happening. Uh, You know, the, you know, you look at what's happening in the U.S. and Trump's going, no, we're going to build it all in the U.S. And, and And I really start to think that, you know, with what's going on between the U.S. and China, you've got import and export fights happening. Trump's pissing in China's cornflakes and, China and Russia seem to be getting along way better. You know, uh, Trudeau's done a good job of pissing off China on a couple of occasions. So we have all this politics going on. The point of that kind of long-winded description is saying there could be a very good chance that in the future we're going to be doing more manufacturing in Canada. It's like, you know, it's like we'll build it locally. Uh, It'll be expensive, but we can't, you know, we need to keep our own population employed, if you will, there's some of that I think that could happen. any any thoughts on what you're what you're sensing because I know that you're you're talking to potential clients who have a view of the world, and is there anything that you're seeing or or hearing in that space, Chad?
1: Yeah, I, I think that there's, there's a lot to, to unpack there. I, I, I certainly don't want to get into politics probably any more than you do no. on this. <laughs> I, and I, I won't comment on, on Trump uh, as, a, as a president per se, but I think one thing that has made him uh, somewhat popular in the U.S. is his America First platform. Yeah. I, th- I think that that's, that's a really easy thing for Americans to buy into Uh, If you have your president saying, let's have America first, uh, I I think that that's an easy message to sell. And I think everybody there could buy into that. Uh, And I think if Canada were to adopt a similar type of philosophy of Canada first, I don't think that's a bad thing for Canadians either. Uh, There's unquestionably been a a historic shift towards globalization and having things manufactured and and sent from all corners of the world uh, back and forth. Uh, but i think at at the core if canada can make more things for us to uh, consume uh as as a country inside the country i, I don't think that that's a bad thing uh so, so if that does happen i i think canada is actually well equipped for it uh we we've, we've got a world class rail network that goes coast to coast uh our supply chain on on getting things all across canada is, is very efficient uh not just within the major cities but within towns all over uh canada as well uh so I, I think canada would be well positioned to to capitalize if there was a shift uh in that manufacturing uh and, and if if there isn't if there's political or geopolitical forces at play that prevent that i still anticipate there being a growth in in the industrial landscape uh because people are just consuming more things we're we're uh, uh, generation of consumers right now where we love stuff. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but uh, I, in, in my house here, my wife and I, every time we add a little bit more space, if we finish the basement or uh, finish a room, it's full uh, <laughs> within uh, a couple of months. And I don't know where we get all this, uh, this stuff from. It just accumulates. Uh, so I, I think that c- Canadians, maybe everybody in the world, just loves, loves shit right now. So we just buy as much as we can. Uh, so I, I think Canada will continue being leaders in manufacturing and, and producing, even if there, there isn't that conscious shift of Canada first, uh, like uh, like Trump is trying to do in the states. Uh, but, but I'm optimistic for for industrial as it's it's a very steady driver. Uh, it, it's it's not a sexy asset class. I don't think it's going to have the same spikes uh, and. And uh, colory to that is risk, uh, but I don't think you'll have the same spikes as you might find in office or retail. But I, I can see it being very steady, uh, just as it has been for decades.
0: You know, it's interesting that you had brought up earlier that you know retail, uh, you know, pre-COVID and even post-COVID, some of your observations around retail. You know, Edmonton specifically, and and I don't know what the the stat is. I haven't heard it for a number of years, but on a on a you know per capita basis, uh, you know, Edmonton specifically spent more money in that retail environment than than any other city i want to say in canada and it was like it was crazy that you know to your point (laughs) uh people specifically in edmonton like to buy shit so you know it's interesting that the retail you know what you're seeing on the retail is is uh you know you're you're looking at it going yeah it could get even if it doubles it's not so bad um so that's an interesting an interesting view i think it's going to be very specific to your point to, you know, not only cities, but pockets within those cities is what's what's going on in there. When you look at, you know, your own business and what you've been doing, Chad, you know, how have you had to pivot through this time? Like, what have you done? Like, I look at Rain, for example, you know, for us, we just turned on a switch that we already had on. Like, all we did was, you know, pick it up. You know, our team is spread out across not only Canada, we have team in the Philippines. And so we've always been a virtual environment. You know, we've gone to an extreme in that virtual environment because now that we're not traveling for our, you know, monthly uh, member meetings and our annual acre events and all of the rest of that has been shut down. We, we all as an executive team and and as a team overall notice you get a little bit tired of working alone, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm, you know, I, I can, you know, I'm, I don't know what it's called when you're both an introvert and an extrovert, I I'm good either way. People would assume I'm an extrovert, but, you know, I can work alone for a long time and have no problem with it. But I am noticing that uh, we're out in the country and I work from my office uh, here on the property and we're really effective, but there is that aspect of it. So what are you noticing yourself in in your business and what you've been doing and, and in the industry overall? What have you had to pivot to do?
1: yeah the, the probably the most noticeable thing is is just a lot more uh, video conferences uh, that that, is, that has been a pickup on just the vernacular that I've had to learn on on the uh, talking on video conferences and the style on how to go about it. Uh, that is, that's probably been the biggest pickup. Uh, our office has implemented a lot of uh, strategies and technology so that people are able to work from home. I, I'm still trying to meet with people when I can, uh, as safely as possible anyways. I was saying to someone the other day that if I had to in, extrapolate my career out and and look 10, 15 years down the road, if I had to spend those 10 or 15 years uh, working at home behind a computer, I'd find that to be a very depressing thought. Uh, so I, I, I think... I can do it for a short term, I very much like you, Patrick, I, I can work, for, work by myself for a period of time as well. But I also crave uh, being around other people and, and getting uh, getting insight from them that that's difficult to get uh, over the phone. So I, I would find it very, very sad to actually think of having to do sit behind a computer every day for the next 10 or 15 years that would that'd be very depressing for me and I think other people will realize that as well mm-hmm. I think that uh, that novelty will wear, will wear off about being able to work at home uh, and having to think about uh, the prospect of doing that for years or decades uh, I, I suspect I'll be equally uh, discouraging for other people so, so I, I think that there will be that shift to to the office uh, the the second part of the question on on what I'm doing uh to pivot. I don't know if I'm I'm pivoting as much uh, as I'm actually just trying to stay constant. Uh, and, and maybe that's maybe that's not the, the best thing to do from a profitability standpoint. Uh, because if, if you're not making significant changes in the in the fa- face of change, then you might get left behind. But I've almost taken the mindset at the beginning of this uh, of COVID that I actually want to continue doing all the things that I did 10-15 years ago to make myself successful at that time. And I I consciously don't want to make fundamental changes uh, to things that had made me successful. Uh, So that might include uh, giving as much attention as I can to one specific client. Instead of trying to go out and get five or six new clients, I'm still focusing on giving as much value as I can to to the group of clients that I have that have been faithful to me. Uh, so I, I, I've consciously actually tried not to pivot. I, I've, I've consciously tried to double down on those habits and, and fundamentals that I do day in day out that, that have made me successful. Uh, and I've, and I've recognized that in the short term, uh, that that might be costly from a revenue standpoint, but I, I do think that this is just a temporary setback in the, in the long-term picture of anyone's career in mine in particular uh so if, if i have a year that that i have to take a bit of a knee and make less than i that i would have the last few years i'm comfortable with that uh, and i guess i'm fortunate to be in a position where where i can do that and not have to have have to worry about it uh, but I, I i want my career to look the same in a year and going forward as it did last year and if this year's an aberration uh but i I stay true to, the, to those things that made me successful, then, then I'm at peace with that.
0: So let's talk about that a little bit. You know, when you say, you know, things that made you successful, I mean, you, you're, you're very accomplished in the space that you play in and that you work in. Yeah. Know what are some of the habits that you've had? What are the things, some of the things that you've learned that you would pass on to others in terms of how you operate in business? Is there a, you know, daily habits, daily routines? What's some of the things that you've grown to, to do that have supported your success, Chad?
1: Uh, pr- probably the biggest thing. Uh, well, what well, is the biggest thing? I, I wouldn't even say probably. It is the biggest thing that that I've done that that I would attribute uh, my success to is is that I I always try to add value uh, wherever I can, uh, and and that comes from not just my anecdotal experience having done it and seen the the value of doing it, but I've asked a number of people over the years. I've I've asked a lot of successful developers and property owners. Uh, landlords, uh, I've asked them what they what they value in in a broker, or what they value in a service provider. Uh, and the ones that that give it some thought, uh, always come back and say, people that add value, uh, the value add services is what separates uh, the average from the excellent. And in in our business, being a, being brokers, uh, there's a tendency where some brokers can just be order takers. Uh, their client will come and ask them to show a property, whether it's, it's a house or whether it's a commercial property, uh, and they'll they'll just go through the motions, almost like a a server at a restaurant, going and getting the food and taking the order, getting them the food, taking their drink order, getting them the, the drink order. Uh, there's a tendency for uh, brokers to do the same thing. They they just take orders from their clients and and they just facilitate their transaction facilitators as as opposed to. Uh, bringing something more to the equation. So the the main thing that I do at, at every opportunity is to try and add value, uh, and that may sound a little bit opaque because it's it's different for client to client. Uh, but but it it could be an example of of one client that's considering buying a property. Uh, if I'm going to uh, to be working with that client, I might go in and do as much due diligence as I can before that person will even write an offer. So I'll, I'll go and manually talk to some of the uh, property owners in the area, uh, get their sense for it, uh, pull a, a bunch of comparables on what's sold recently, do a full search to get so they have an idea of everything that they're competing with, uh, and, and almost do like a, a a bit of an underwriting on that property before they're even considering it. Uh, and if I can present that to them before they've even made a decision on whether they want to pursue it or not, that, that's adding value to the equation. Uh, and, and I think people really appreciate uh, any time that someone goes over and above uh, their expectations. Uh, so that'd be the main thing. And and that's that's what I tell younger brokers all the time is, is just wherever you can, just try to add value. Uh, it, it's going to be different every time. Every client's going to have a different idea on 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 what they need, uh, or you they're gonna have a a different expectation for it. Uh, So it's it's gonna vary, you have to be a bit creative in there, but adding value has been key. Uh, And I piggyback with a second one that's also been very important and, and that's just uh, doing things a little bit differently. Uh, Commercial real estate is, uh, is an industry that's, that's has deep roots in, in almost being uh, stubborn. Uh, there is a resistance to to market properties online and to to get into technology. Uh, commercial real estate is well behind residential when it comes to that. Uh, and, and I've tried uh, uh, earnestly and aggressively to to change that. So I, I'm pretty active on on social media. I write a blog every week on commercial real estate. Uh, so I've tried to to do things that other people aren't doing instead of just following the the herd. Uh, I've tried doing things. Uh, uh, outside of the 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 normal i guess you could call it
0: where do people go just because i got it in my top of my mind where do people go to see your blog chad
1: edmontoncommercial.com
0: now when we look at commercial real estate when you see what's happening uh you know pre covid then you kind of look into the future and you look at what's going on economically we talked a little bit about oil and gas in alberta you know being alberta what alberta is and then specifically in edmonton when you're dealing with commercial are you are your clients primarily end user clients or are you seeing a, a lot of investor clients uh, what's the balance there and and you know I I'd, I'd like to get to the message really of what is the investment opportunities in the commercial space given what's going on in Edmonton for example
1: yeah that's that's a great question and i i think it the, the best answer is that it really goes in waves. Uh, th- there's times where there's a lot of people chasing a small amount of properties. Uh, so the, the demand is really high and the supply is low. Uh, and then there's other times where it's flat, which I would say right now is mostly flat. There, there are investors looking in the market right now, uh, but it's, there's still a trepidation about what this all looks like in the fall. Uh, so there's, there's an apprehension there uh, right now until there's some better direction, uh, but interest rates are really cheap. So uh, people are always attracted by cheap money, uh, which flows into, in, into the capital markets quite quickly. Uh, so I, I suspect uh, that it, for parties that are able to put a deal together, there are buyers out there. Uh, there's, there's not as many sellers as I would have expected. Uh, when when this first started unraveling in, in march uh and and the covid started becoming bigger and bigger news i expected there to be a a ton of fire sales uh, i i thought a lot of sellers were going to get very nervous about the the short medium term prospects of commercial real estate and and start dumping properties uh, and it's actually been the opposite uh if anything uh property owners have been keeping keeping their properties and, and almost refusing to sell. Uh, and and I, would, I would attribute that to the government and and uh, the debt deferrals that banks have done. Uh, because if a property owner was struggling to pay any of their bills and the bank came along and said, you don't have to pay your mortgage for six months, that just gave them a six-month window where they can take all that financial pressure off their shoulders. So I, I think a lot of property owners, uh, if they were considering selling uh, have now deferred their mortgages and have just said let's kick this can down the road see what things look like in six months to a year uh, and then reevaluate at that point uh but yeah ultimately I'm, I'm very surprised at how little property has has come on the market for sale uh there's there's been a pretty big uptick in in lease space coming available uh we've seen a lot more uh, uh properties available being marketed for lease but on the sales side uh, anything that's that's an investment not a not an owner user property but anything with existing cash flow uh, suited for an investor it's it's surprising how low the inventory is
0: what where do you see the uptick is it is it on the retail side or is it light industrial what office space what kind of categories are you seeing the uptick in lease or is it just an overall you're seeing it right across the board
1: yeah, I, I think it's right across the board. I, there, there has been uh, more vacancy in all asset classes, uh, and I, I just attribute that to uh, the state of the economy. There's, there's just a lot of businesses that, uh, that have had significantly reduced revenue, and and there's no amount of debt deferral or stimulus that that can keep a company that's going to go bankrupt uh, imminently, anyways. So, uh, I think a lot of those companies uh, that had probably been struggling pre-COVID. Uh, have probably used this as uh, almost permission to fail, and maybe that's uh, not not the best way to describe it. But uh, uh, for companies that were holding on, and maybe they had pride uh, involved, where they just they didn't want to fail, they don't want to tell their friends and family that they failed at a business, so they're holding on and holding on. And COVID came, and and they're like, well, if if this isn't as good of an excuse as any to to finally close the doors, I don't know what is. Uh, I, maybe that's what it is. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we're, we're, we're seeing more vacancy pop up, but surprisingly very little on the investment side.
0: So when you look into Edmonton let's break it down a little bit, I mean, this podcast goes beyond the country, it goes into the U S and we get all sorts of stuff. So I, you know, it's, it's tough to be specific about Edmonton, but just because of your background, I'm from Edmonton, born and raised in Edmonton as well. Um, although I don't live there full-time anymore, um, you know, I'm Edmonton still, you know, close to my heart. When you look at what's happening in Edmonton right now, is is there specific areas that you're seeing is the potential for growth and, let's say in a light industrial or on let's just generalize to say commercial space, is there a, a specific uh, part of town that that seems to be a little bit more active these days?
1: Hey, that, that's a very good question. I, I don't know if I would specifically point to any one area or any one asset class as being uh, the the best opportunity for the sole reason that that I I just don't know myself. Uh, I I think that there's still a lot of uncertainty uh that's going to come in the next few months here. Uh as we talked about earlier with stimulus drying up and and uh, people that have deferred their uh mortgage payments having to resume those again. I think that there's still some uncertainty in the short term. I'm still quite bullish on on Edmonton long term uh, uh but for anyone that's looking to to buy real estate to make Short-term gains, or to try and hedge against any risk, I, I, I think that that's that might be a, a dangerous proposition. Uh, I, I've always been a, a bullish long-term investor myself in Edmonton, but I'm I've got a horizon that's 5, 10 plus years out, uh, and I, I think any of these aberrations in the market are are going to be short-term, uh, but long-term uh we, we still have we there's still a lot of prospects in Edmonton uh our vacancy rates are still pretty low uh there's there's reasons to be optimistic about Edmonton in the call it medium to long term uh, in the short term i i just really don't know i i don't know what's going to happen uh once the market comes back to reality and we go from that fake economy to an economy that actually has to stand on its own again i i i if anyone has a crystal ball on what what the fall market looks like here I'd love to hear it.
0: <laughs> well I think there's you know you know there's a there's a fundamental that's that's really happening you know to this you know what we call this kind of fake economy it's it's just not real and and so we will start to see some of the data eventually come out. You know my own observation is is that I believe that data has been intentionally I guess it hasn't been released as as aggressively as you would when the economy is good, and and I and I understand the, the context and the concept for that is because if you're releasing data, you know that's really bad data. It sh- you know, it really shuts consumer confidence down. It shuts and, and a, it could actually go to work to shut a, an economy down even further than it is. I mean, people are living in fear right now. There's you know there's uh, i think anybody would see just how polarizing the whole covid conversation is i mean it's you know it's vax anti-vax it's mask anti-mask it's this is you know this you know covid's not real to you know what are you kidding me uh, COVID is is going to kill you. Like there, there's so much fear, which is going to shut down a market, which is polarizing, which causes some challenges. And then, of course, if we add a bunch of economic data, I, I think the most recent number I've seen in terms of unemployment, for example, uh, overall in Alberta, you know, they're they're talking about twelve and a half percent or twelve percent is is what came out of ATB's numbers. But I think those numbers are are really really uh, conservative. I think unemployment in Alberta specifically is, is far higher than that because you've got an economy that's been melted down for quite some time. Now you've got people that have not gone back to work, but they're, you know, they're no longer on EI. And, and so there's, you know, I think that number, and then you, and of course you've got entrepreneurs and shut down, you know, solopreneurs, those one and two man shows that are doing their stuff that they don't even qualify for EI. So I think all of those numbers are, are really, um, you have to look into those numbers much deeper to really understand what's going on economically. So when we look into the future, then we ask ourselves, you know, we see, you know, it's easy to kind of, it's easier, I think, to anticipate what's happening in the residential space than it is in the commercial space. And, and that's what's interesting about even what our conversation was earlier, which is what is the demand going to be for services and, and local work because you're, you know, maybe exports or imports aren't going to be opening up as much as they were in the past. Uh, you know, things are really thin right now. We're, we're starting to already see escalation in some pricing, for example, in lumber, you know, so we, you know, so there's, there's that, that happens in then there's steel and there's all the things that are going on. Uh, what does that mean? Well, you know, when you look at what's happening in the space of, uh, uh, of manufacturing, as an example, there could be a, a really strong uptick in in that space, which would then benefit investors that are looking at the light industrial space or manufacturing space in in any any given city. And in this case, we're talking about Edmonton. That's kind of a long winded way around, but you know, what's your view of that when you really look into the into the future? Because in the short term, nobody knows what the hell's going on. Our job as investors and and leaders in this space is to be able to look into the future that in general, the masses don't look that far down the road to your, you know, they're looking at what's in front of them as you know, in your industry, in your space, the space that you play or the space that I play in, I have to look way into the future. That's my job to look at the economics of what's happening, to be able to kind of analyze and decipher. And, you know, we have the research team that does that. So, from you, from your perspective, forget short term, as you look into the future, do you see something different than you've seen before? I guess is, I don't know if that's the right question, but we'll get to it.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and one thought that just came to mind as well uh, that, that might illustrate Edmonton's and, and Alberta to a, to another extent's economy uh, is Melcor REIT. Uh, so that's the REIT that Melcor spun off a, a number of years ago to, to hold all their real estate so they're they're a diversified REIT, so they've got asset classes in retail, office, and industrial. And and I know this might be a bit off tangent, but I'll, I'll circle around to the point that I'm trying to make. Uh, they just released their quarterly statements the other day, uh, and in there they uh, announced that they had reevaluated, uh, reappraised all of their uh, portfolio, uh, and it it amounted to a seven percent write down in value. Uh, so the, the there's a publicly traded company with a heavy exposure to Alberta's commercial real estate market had that had independent appraisals on their property that showed a 7% decline. So I think anyone that had bought a property and was hoping to sell it in the next year or two, uh, there's a pretty good indication on, on what a major company has had to do to their real estate values. In the short term, that can be distressing and, and maybe that causes people some anxiety on where to go from there. Uh, but uh, I, I think most investors are looking at it as if if this is an aberration, if if this is a seven percent drop and maybe it's ten percent on one asset class and zero on another, and it bounces out somewhere in the middle if If this was the real drop in in value. What does that mean for my portfolio? And, and I can give a personal example on this uh, because myself and, and a few of my partners in my office, we actually bought our building uh, in, we're located in South Edmonton. We actually bought our building in September uh, of last year. So we're about a 23,000 square foot building. Uh, our office is the one of the major tenants in it. And then we've got four or five other tenants in there. We're splitting the bay in half, so that's that's why I say we might have four or five. Uh, we've actually been pretty fortunate that all of our tenants have paid the rent. Uh, we haven't had to uh, to give any uh, abatement or or defer any rent on that. We've been fortunate in that. But we bought that building in September. Six months later, we have a global pandemic. Like what are the what are the chances of that? Uh, but uh, what what I've said to to my partners on this is. I, me personally, I'm I'm not concerned about it. Uh, I, th- I think that there could be some short-term pain if we had to get that building reappraised and let's say it was a 7% drop. Uh that that's that hurts. But I have no interest in selling this building right now. I, I didn't buy this building to flip it in a year. I bought this as a long-term hold uh to where I, I might hold this for 20 years. Uh and, and if I hold it for 20 years, what happens? in in the rest of 2020 or even what happens in 2021 is, is largely irrelevant uh so there, there's there's those two forces at play you there, there's gonna be more news like that 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 comes out in the market of other companies that have had to write down real estate values uh melcor reed is just the most top of mind because that was uh uh yesterday or the day before they did their q3 q3 report there's gonna be more of that that comes out uh and I, and i and i agree with you completely i think a lot of that negative news is is suppressed and maybe that's a good thing so we don't have to be subjected to all this negativity all the time. I think it is. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, well, I definitely don't like reading negative news. I, I don't think that's healthy for the mind at all. Uh, but there is going to be negative news that comes out. Uh, and I, I think it has to be offset by looking at it with a, a longer-term lens. Uh, for anyone that that is going to be uh, selling, uh, whether it's in 2020 or 2021, uh, there, there could be a shift in, in expectations. Uh, I don't want to say that there'll be a drop in prices or even downward pressure on those prices Uh, but it's going to be difficult to justify a price that you might have had in mind a year ago or two years ago will probably have to be an adjustment on that to to actually sell into the open market Uh, but if the objective is to hold it for a while even if it's five years uh, I don't think anyone has an idea what what the economy looks like in five years but I'm still bullish that that it's going to look better than it does today. Uh, and if you extrapolate that out even further, you look 15, 20 years down the road. Uh, I, I, I'm still a a big believer in long term holding on real estate, even though I bought a building six months before a global pandemic.
0: Well, I think there's a couple things around that, and and those are really strong points to consider. You know, when I when I I, I was interviewed uh, recently in a non it was a non real estate. Uh, environment, in other words, they were interviewing me about real estate, but there, this was a, a business that was about entrepreneurs, Canada wide. And one of the questions they asked, you know, what are the strengths and weaknesses of Canadian real estate? And and so, without getting into all of the details of, you know, specifics in terms of let's not talk Canadian real estate, let's just talk about real estate uh, in general. Which is, you know, the the one of the strengths of real estate is if you have a long term view of it, and you've got you know, from an investment point of view, and you've got the right tenants and all the rest of it, there's there the downside to real estate is not all that down. I mean it's it's you know if you're if you're in it for the short term, these kinds of things happen. There's a an economic something, a black swan of some sort. Yeah, it can really bite you in the ass, you know, timing of of those kinds of things. Uh to your point around all of this though, when you're looking at I'm a big fan of light industrial and or a mix of retail light industrial, um because I think there's opportunities there that you've got. For example, you bought that building a year ago, approximately, and you've got a good client base in there. So you've got a good tenant base. And so aside from the value of the building, if it's supported by strong tenants, strong leases, I mean, ultimately your cap rate is still remains very strong. So, you know, you're getting your rents, you know, if you've got a, a good core group of tenants in your building, and you're communicating well with them and you're supporting their success as well which is kind of a value add to your tenant base i mean i think there's it's it's pretty tough to draw a picture of a, a strong downside that's my view of it and and you know the biggest risk in all of this is if you've put a questionable tenant in a commercial space and even if they're not questionable i mean let's just let's face it i mean i have two retail stores in edmonton where I had to shut down. I mean I shut down one I now I've opened up one of my one of my stores one of my locations. Um and it's and it's been very very strong. The other location I haven't opened yet and I'm in an in- industry you know in in the in my case in the skating industry hockey and figure skating a very boutique shop but I mean ultimately not everybody's even back on the ice yet. So not only did you know did I have to shut down from that point of view I mean the industry itself was shut down. You know they're not letting uh, kids back on the ice yet in, in in that context. So, a strong client base in in a building, uh, a strong tenant is really what you're looking for ultimately, and and that is is nothing but good for you know price of a of
1: your asset. I, I couldn't agree with you more on that, Patrick. And and I think any investor would be wise to make sure that they've got any risk priced into any acquisition that they make, uh, but also be Cognizant that if they do have a space that comes back available, if the, if maybe it's a tenant that fails or if it's a tenant that doesn't renew their lease, there should be a high degree of confidence that there's a pool of potential tenants that that could be interested in that space. Uh, one one property that comes to mind that could that could contain a lot of risk is a property that might be a single use building that has a tenant specific to that property. Uh, if that tenant were to leave, uh, what are the chances of backfilling it with a similar type of tenant if that building was specific to them? And I, I have a client right now that has a property in South Edmonton that's like this. It's roughly a 20,000 square foot building. It was designed specifically for the tenant in there. And we're working on renewing that tenant right now. Uh, and And my advice to them is... Uh, if we can't come to terms on this, and you lose this tenant, how long could the property sit vacant for, and essentially lose 100% of the cash flow because it's a single tenant building until we can fill it with another tenant? So I, I think buying buying a property where you have a high degree of confidence that if the tenant leaves, you can find another tenant, and industrial often gets the the connotation of just being the proverbial four walls and a roof. Uh, that there's just a building where people go in and make stuff or they just go and store stuff. Uh, and and that's that's not always the case. Although there is some some relevance to that, that's not always the case. Because there's certain things that can make a, an industrial property functionally obsolescent uh, much more so than any other asset class. Uh, an example might be ceiling heights. Uh, if uh, an older industrial property only has 18 foot ceiling heights and modern tenants want higher and in some buildings, uh, including in BC, like you're, you guys are approaching 32, 36 foot clear ceiling heights now. So you can see how a building that has sub 20 foot clear ceiling heights would, would be at a distinct disadvantage compared to a modern property that has much higher ceiling heights. So it, it, it's it's incumbent on any investor to make sure that they're they're buying a property that uh, potentially they're cash flowing right now or at least has the ability to, to attract a tenant that will be interested in it uh, to really mitigate that risk. Uh, because industrial real estate and commercial real estate in general can be an, an awesome asset class to invest in. Uh, there, there can be some really high long-term returns and, and there's a lot of benefits that come with owning commercial real estate. But there's there's also risk for for people that, that maybe jump into something without looking at all the angles on it. Uh, so I, I would say that anyone that's looking to invest in Industrial real estate, and and it's no different than uh, any other asset class, or even residential real estate. They, they need to make sure that the property is attractive enough and and has the potential to be leased uh, down the road, uh, because eventually that tenant is going to leave, and it will need to be released. So uh, that's that's an important characteristic to keep in mind for for anyone looking to invest.
0: I started investing twenty years ago. You know, if I have a regret it would be that I didn't buy more, more commercial real estate, uh, you know, because, you know, uh, you know, there's, yes, there is inherent risk about it. But I think in understanding the market far, far better, I mean, you know, uh, you know, anybody interested in commercial, uh, you know, you want to be working with somebody like a Chad, who's who's got a view of the world that is really different, because there's, I tell you what, it's, you know, you're, it's a whole different world that you get to play in when you're actually being able, you're not, you're not the uh, you're not the effective landlord residential tenancy act. This is a business. You get to look at financial statements. You get to choose tenants. Having said all that, I mean there's there's a real upside to that space. But you know the the downside is is it's an expensive space to hold on to while you find the right tenant. Uh, TIs can be, you know, a uh, uh, capital cost that you have to be prepared to to work with your tenant on. So I mean, there's there's there are some high costs in the in that space. But then you're also signing five year, ten year leases, and if you treat it right, even a five year lease, you know, just keeps rolling over because of ultimately, you know, the, the the work you do with that tenant to support their success. If they're being successful in that location, assuming they don't uh, grow it uh you know you can have a tenant for a very very long time you know and uh there's there's a lot of upside i'm a big fan of commercial legacy if i had a regret around anything it would be that i didn't buy way more of it and uh spent too much time in the residential space when you is i don't know if you can generalize in this at all chad but are you what are you seeing for cap rates in edmonton on some spaces can you give me can you give some examples
1: yeah, surprisingly, it hasn't changed a whole lot uh, even over the past few months. Uh, I, I've been in the business for 15 years, uh, and I'd say over that 15 years, there's been a almost a pre- pretty consistent operating band uh, for cap rates. Uh, if you've got a high quality government tenant in a Class A office building, you're probably in the in the low fives. Uh, and if you've got a property that maybe has some vacancy or requires some work, or uh, the tenants aren't strong, or it's a bad area, it's run down, you're probably going to be in the high sevens. Uh, but that, that's that been pretty consistent over the last 15 years of that that band of being in low fives to high sevens. Uh, and Even in the last few months, I haven't seen much of a shift in that. Uh, and, and I would say that that's that's pretty consistent across Alberta too, uh, which I know is the is is probably surprising. Well, you know Edmonton well, anyways, but surprising for people in in markets like uh, 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 Vancouver, or Toronto, where those cap rates are much lower. Uh, you know, we're in that we're in that five to high sevens.
0: So. Let's talk a little bit about your journey to get to where you are i mean you're 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 well educated you've got a background, so how did you kind of come by being in the business that you're in what's a little bit of your background chad you know the the context of of the everyday millionaire is really about the seemingly ordinary achieving extraordinary and and you're a standout in your space i mean you've accomplished a lot you've done a lot but was your what was what's a little bit of your story to get here? Did you grow up in it? Was your dad in the space was your mom an entrepreneur? Was your dad an entrepreneur? Like, how did you get into the space and, and come to, you know, to be who you are?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely actually the black sheep in my family from taking an entrepreneurial road. Uh, my, my dad was a teacher. My mom was a nurse. Uh, my, both my sisters went into medicine. I actually dropped out of college. I, I was in my first year of business school uh, 20 years ago or so and uh, finished my first year, but I was working at a restaurant at the time and they offered me a management position. Uh, so instead of uh, uh, pursuing the, the business education route, I actually went into, uh, took that manager role. Uh, and I did that for for a couple of years. Uh, I really didn't like it, didn't see a long-term uh, future in it. So I uh, uh, almost serendipitously got into commercial real estate through, uh, uh, through my uncle, who was an architect in town. And uh, so I got into, into that in 2004. And uh, all along the time, I, I really regretted not finishing my education. So it just so happened that as I was getting into commercial real estate, I noticed the more education I have, the more value I'd be able to offer to my clients. Uh, so uh, shortly after getting into the into the business, I embarked on finishing my my diploma. So I uh, got a diploma th- uh, through UBC, uh, went on, got my undergrad, uh, finished my undergrad. Then I got a graduate diploma in business administration. Then I finished an MBA. Uh, all over the course of 10 years or so so definitely an unconventional way of of getting a master's degree is is doing it while i had a profession and while i was raising a family uh, but I, I i thought that it was just a way for me to continue learning that lifelong learning of of uh, always absorbing as much as i possibly can uh, and and just getting better as a result of it and and i think, one of the the best outcomes of taking all of that education was it's really kept my mind sharp. And it's, uh, it's given me a lot of skills uh, that some people that, pr- that do their education before they go into the business might lose. Uh, they might lose some of those skills if they don't practice them. Uh, I was regularly writing papers or having to do critical thinking. Uh, and I think a lot of that actually assisted me in my career. Uh, so I, uh, I, Unconventional by by no mean, by all means uh, to to go and get it uh, at that stage, but uh, I, I really value it, and and if nothing else, I'll be able to uh, tell my kids that they don't have an excuse uh, when it's their turn to go to school. Now 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 they have to uh, <laughs> uh, to go to university. So yeah, that that's how I got my education, and when I started in two thousand and four. Uh, I, I just realized that this is something that I that I can help people out in. I, I I can I can be passionate about it. It was something I believed in. I was excited about, excited to get up every day and see how I could help people out and 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 get paid if I was successful in bridging uh, two parties together. Uh, and I've just kept that same philosophy. I've I've never wanted to to be that uh, that salesman that was thinking about a deal over over the best interests of a client. So I've, I've, I've been true uh, to myself in that regard from day one, that, that uh, if, if I do all the right things along the way, then, then the money will come down the road. Uh, And if the money is trailing, uh, what I have to do right now, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. And I, and I think combining that, that ambition and that drive to, to want to get all this education and want to give the best service that I can, that that confluence of conditions, uh, was just at the right time. I was was really in the right place at the right time with the right work, work ethic, uh, to be on this successful end of, of having some clients that have been very loyal to me. Uh, I've been very fortunate, uh, with that. And, and, uh, yeah, I've I've been very grateful, uh, which, which I attribute a lot to luck. Uh, I I think there's a lot of luck that came into, into my success. Uh, but, uh, sometimes, uh, you need to be lucky to be good and good to be lucky, I guess.
0: Well, yeah, there's always a you know, there's yeah, there's always a course that seems that the harder you work, the luckier you get. So, you know, we also have those conversations as well. It's something I don't want to step over, you know, there's a couple of things around, you know, I'm like you, I'm very bullish on Edmonton in a long term world, you know, whether it be uh, residential or commercial. But, you know, when I look at commercial space in, in Edmonton, uh, you know, it is really the kind of the blue collar hub of of Alberta. You know for sure. You know proximity. You know whatever's going on in Fort McMurray, we're we're still that kind of epicenter in in manufacturing for and services for for the oil industry. What some would argue remains of it. But at the end of the day, I think Edmonton is very very strong in that space. But you know, the question I want to get, and I know I'm kind of bouncing around here, but we look at what's happening in the commercial space from your client perspective. And from what you've, you know, the conversations you've had in that space, what have you seen from uh people tapping into, and this is an interesting conversation for me, but I'll get to the question tapping into the uh Canadian emergency, what is it uh, secret? So Canadian emergency, commercial rent assistance. So what, what, have you seen some of your clients tapping into that? I mean, I've I know personally that on the space that I own, I've used it because primarily because I'm my own tenant and you know I do all sorts of stuff that way. But I found it it was actually quite uh, quite a tedious kind of thing to do. But I I I got through it and and I did it and all good. They've extended that program till the end of August now. I understand. But what have you seen and how impactful has that been uh, based on what you've seen in that space, Chad?
1: Yeah, your comments about it being tedious is reflective of what I've heard across the board. Uh, It it was a program that came on with such velocity uh, that it's scary to think what the government is capable of when they move that quickly. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they tend to move slow at the best of times for, so for them to bring on a program that quickly, it was, it was sure to be rife with problems. And it was, uh, it's a very arduous process. Uh, it's, it's essentially the federal government announced it, uh, CMHC has to administer it. Landlords have to apply on behalf of the tenants and then tenants are the ones that benefit from it in, in the form of a 75% reduction in rent. So the, the, in, in theory, the program is designed to help tenants that have had a more than 70% uh, reduction in revenue. And I think that's a noble goal. If the government is trying to help out tenants that have had a significant reduction, in some cases of a full reduction of, of revenue, uh, I think that, that that's a good plan. It's just so nebulous and confusing on, on how the thing was set up, that there hasn't been the uptick uh, that the, the government was expecting. I read a report the other day that roughly 10% uh, of the money earmarked for that program has been allocated so far. So you you can see that as an abject failure. If someone allocates X amount and only 10% of that gets used, that surely isn't the uptick that they were anticipating. So it hasn't been adopted as as well as uh, they would have liked. And I think it is because it's so confusing. And it also puts a, a pretty big Uh, hindrance uh, on the tenants for for the eligibility requirements uh, and having to be down 70% on average for April, May, and June. Uh, There's there's a lot of companies that were maybe down 50% uh, or they weren't sure uh, when the program came out what their June revenue would actually be. So they couldn't commit to being down 70% on average. There's just a lot of uncertainty there. The landlords that I have talked to uh, would predominantly be on the retail side uh, that have had a more than 70% reduction. Uh, a lot of the office tenants have still kept going, whether it's like an accounting firm or a law firm or engineering firm, they still have revenue that that wouldn't render them eligible under the criteria. And same with industrial. A lot of industrial has continued uh, going forward. So the the asset class that, that has been most affected by this is retail, the hair salons and personal service shops and the in the stores that were just forced to be closed uh, because they were deemed non, non-essential non landlords have gone through with that and, and there has been an uptick uh but for the most part people have said the, the process was was frustrating uh tenants are still complaining about it uh, uh in in the fact that they're not able to apply themselves they have to get the landlord to apply uh, if they're only down sixty percent, they're ineligible. Uh, where we we both know if a company's down sixty percent three months in a row, they're probably not not doing too well. Uh, so the, the program is, has a lot of problems, uh, but there are some landlords that have been able to to take advantage of it.
0: In my case, it was you know I was I had two stores shut down, you know, so I was a hundred percent you know shut down. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know for me it was easy, and and in terms of. Uh, uh, qualifying for it, but man, oh man, I, I, I think I you know I can cut the government you know politics aside. I can, I can cut the government a lot of slack in terms of their reaction because who's been through something like this before? And, and it, it took banks a long time to get their shit together. And and I've got a lot of space for it. I, I, I'm a little bit frustrated these days. Uh, you know, I'm an entrepreneur at heart, um, and I'm looking at what's going on economically, and and I'm and I'm suggesting that as much as we're we've got CERB and and that program was necessary, it's like, okay, we gotta start dialing some of the stuff back and and we have to, you know, when we look at employment, when we look at getting an economy going again, we really have to spend some time looking at the SMEs and why isn't the government, you know, putting why hasn't our government, you know, put a plan together to support SMEs that then support our 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 employment? I mean at the end of the day, and these large corporations is 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 less than 50% of what's really going on in in the employment space you know and what drives our economy so we've got you know a shutdown and a real um We got a. a, I you know one of the reasons I can't open my one of my locations is because I can't get staff. So highest, (laughs) the highest unemployment ever, and the largest labor shortage ever. You know because you know uh, these you know a lot of people don't want to go back to work. I mean they're making a couple grand a month. I mean this is my it's a retail space, so a lot of part time and and you know it's not high paying jobs per se. I mean I'm paying above minimum wage, but. They're going, ah, summer, I got summer, I got a couple grand a month, you know, um, I'm going to go hang out. And uh, so it's an interesting time for sure. And when I look at what's going on economically, if because I've got this platform, I do say that, you know, my one criticism, and I've got many of them of our government, but ultimately is that why aren't we, we investing in the SMEs that will then drive employment? Because we really need that. And that's where consumer confidence comes from. That's where people are spending money. We got to get money going in and churning back in our economy again. And that's one of the downsides. As much as we think that people are buying shit, a lot of people aren't buying shit. They're actually, you know, and, and the numbers are so, so, uh, what's the word, uh, misrepresenting what's happening. Because they'll say, this is up 20% over June. Well, okay, but the 20% over June... Uh, still means we're down forty percent from what it was let's say a year ago. You know, so it's the numbers are very you have to really look what's behind the curtain in the numbers that are being released. So that's that's, you know, often if we talk about economy, that's kind of where I get a little bit going. I won't go there today, but the frustration <laughs> is is there. So because you're dealing in the space that you're, you know, you're working in the space you're working in chat, what are you hearing from business owners? What are you hearing from these these guys that not only own the commercial space, but operate within that commercial space, the business owners are, are have you start to kind of put a, a view of the world about optimism or lack of optimism, or I'm sure there's lots of frustration, but what, what are you seeing out there?
1: Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. I, I think we could uh, section it off into two distinct groups. Uh, there's there's property owners and investors in one, and then there's the, the companies and the tenants uh, on the other side. I think for the, for the most part, uh, the landlords are are focused on the immediate future, on just making sure that their tenants stay solvent and, and have the ability to pay rent, not just now, but into the future. Uh, so I, I think uh, e- even though, and, and myself would be an example of this too, even though I have a long term outlook on holding commercial real estate, I still have a very short term goal on making sure all the tenants have the ability to pay rent at least in the near future. Uh, so long-term outlook, short-term focus, uh, and, and that's exclusively because of the conditions. Uh, normally, I wouldn't be looking just at, at today's numbers. I'd, I'd be looking more, what, what's rent gonna look like in a year or two, five years? Uh, and, and I think that that's uh, representative of uh, a lot of what people are saying right now, is let's just help our tenants make sure that they survive going into the fall here, and that they're prepared to to weather this once the uh, the all the programs wear off uh, and they've they've got to start taking the training wheels off again. Uh, I I think that that's where most landlords are focused on right now on the on the tenant side. I, I think a lot of companies uh, are are concerned uh, about what this looks like once wage subsidies dry up, uh, once uh, the any secret eligibility that. Payments that they would have had uh, once their banks start requiring them to make payments on any loans that they've. Def- uh, I, I think that there's some some concern in the companies that were already on the cusp of of significant struggles. Uh, I think those companies are are very concerned about it, and that that will that will percolate through the whole economy uh, because if if we start losing that bottom tranche of of tenants that uh, were struggling and they can't make things go in the fall here that that could be concerning not just to the companies themselves but to the landlords as well so i what what the government does uh, on this and on whether they just keep extending these stimulus programs in perpetuity until everybody is able to to uh, survive on their own anyone's guess at this point to your earlier uh thought about uh, the government actually uh, doing a good job on this. I, I agree with it completely. I I can often be critical of the government myself, uh, but the fact that they came out with uh, as many robust programs as they have uh, has definitely kept the economy from being much worse than it could have been without any of this uh, stimulus and, and intervention. So uh, I, I applaud the government for that, but I, I'm also concerned that it's produced this false sense of security for these companies that will eventually have to return to reality. So the the companies that that are already struggling should be concerned uh, coming into the fall. Uh, but there's also a lot of companies that that have done well through this. Uh, they've, they've seen their revenues stay the same or maybe increase. Uh, so that I think that those companies will be fine. Now, a lot of them haven't had to take any government stimulus at all uh, or defer things. So I, I think that the the vast majority of of companies should be fine coming into the fall but there's going to be those companies on the fringe that that are struggling maybe they operate with very low uh, profit margins or they've got very low retained earnings Uh, they don't have a rainy day fund uh, and this definitely qualifies as a rainy day Uh, those companies could be in for some pain Uh, and and i'm hearing about that uh, because we we have uh, companies reach out to us and, and see if they can downsize their space or if they can sublease a portion of their space. Uh, those are almost like a leading indicator of where we can see the the, the market going uh, in the fall. But I don't think that that represents the majority of the market. I, I still think the majority of companies uh, have healthy retained earnings. They have healthy profit margins. Uh, it's no different for... A, for the average strong company than it is for the average strong uh, uh citizen who just has money saved for an occasion such as this. And and if it takes a year to to get back to where it was, uh they've prepared for that. Uh so I I I there is a sense of of uh pessimism in that lower tranche of tenants that are already struggling uh overall. I think people are still optimistic in the long term, uh, but probably just are going to be tentative coming into the fall here until they have a better direction on how the whole economy looks. Uh, so maybe a maybe a long-winded answer, which I, I could summarize by saying uh, tenants that are struggling uh, are 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 going to be concerned going into the fall. Most tenants uh, are prepared for this and will be able to weather it. On the landlord side, they're they're looking to help that subsection of the tenants that are struggling. That's where a lot of landlord focus is going is to try and keep that section from actually failing and, and distribute and balance that market as much as possible.
0: Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that, and, and as we start to wind down, I mean, there's so many things that I, you know, we can talk about economically and and I love the space that you play in because it, it really gets into the, the world of, you know, small, medium businesses. And, and it's a world that I love to spend time looking at and, because I know it drives our economy in such a, such a big way, but you know, we, we can't minimize, you know, when we say the majority of businesses will survive it, I agree a hundred percent. But when we look at Canada, you know, I don't know what the the data is and it can't depend on my memory, but I want to say it's like 1.1 million uh, small, medium businesses in Canada, you know, and, and, you know, we're having conversations and there's releasing data that's saying there's a risk of, let's say 15% of those businesses shut down. Now, 15% is, you know, doesn't maybe sound like a big number. Let's say that's even exaggerated. Let's say it's 10%. Well, that's a hundred thousand businesses that either shut down or take a huge economic hit. Well, when you look at a hundred thousand, and what does that represent in terms of jobs? What does that represent in terms of GDP? You know, and and the impact, uh, it becomes pretty. Uh, it becomes a a big number and something that we all have to consider. So, I'm trying to look at you know into the future and and look at the glass half full and say, okay, how do we actually? what's the game and we have to stay on top of what's the game we got to play as entrepreneurs. And I'm very optimistic in the long term because, you know, ultimately that space gets filled by other entrepreneurs. I mean, people move in, they see the opportunity, but that all takes time to get that churn going again. You know, you got startups coming in, you guys, you got people that are going to look at the technology aspect of it or the service aspect of it, and they're going to invent all sorts of things. And and so I'm I'm very optimistic, but I, I am concerned in the short term, uh, as the economy starts to go through it, what it's going to go through, and I think both you and I agree on the fact that in the short term, uh, whatever that short term looks like, you know, starting this fall, I think we're going to start to see some some pain uh, being experienced beyond what we may be feeling today. So uh, that's a that's an uh, that's something we got to take a look at.
1: Yeah, and just to piggyback on that, the those SMEs, not only uh, do we have to weigh their contribution to GDP and their their, the amount of jobs that they produce as well but also just the amount of real estate that they, they occupy mm. uh, and if if it's at 10 to 15 percent uh, that that does go out of business that could leave a huge gap uh, in the commercial real estate market as well so uh, that's going to be something very uh, very important to watch as a, as a trend going into the fall
0: yeah. So we have to wind down. I mean, I, I, this to me is an interesting topic and, and I know for many of the listeners, they'll, they'll really get a lot out of it. But as we wind down, there's always some, what I call our rapid fire questions. That's how I always end my shows. So let's talk about a couple things. What book are you reading these days or what's the book that you love to gift? What's one of your favorites?
1: The, without question, the, the best book that I've read lately is uh, Red Notice. And the the author's name actually escapes me right now, but it was uh a guy who at one point was the largest foreign investor in Russia. Uh, and it tells the story about uh, just Russian corruption and, and how you don't become the largest foreign investor in Russia without some repercussions. Uh, it was written in first-person narrative about uh, some of the things that happened to him, which ultimately culminated in his lawyer being murdered. Uh, and uh, it led to the uh, Magnitsky Act being passed in the US and, and iterations of it being passed all over the world. Uh, but it, it was it was like a crime novel like it, it was one of the most fascinating reads that i've that i've blown through i think i read that book in three or four days it was an incredible book. read
0: notice i'm gonna take a look at that one uh i read a lot so it, what's cool about this is like you say it's like reading a crime novel but it's real it was it really happened it's always very it, it, cool it was
1: real yeah, yeah so it was right from his perspective you he, he's a great author uh smart guy uh yeah it, it was it was an awesome book i highly recommend that one Cool. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Uh, I th- the one that always seems to, to come up is the one by Aristotle. Uh, you are you repeatedly do excellence, therefore, is uh, an act, not a habit.
0: Mm, interesting. That's a good one. Room, desk, or your car, what do you clean first?
1: Uh, I my car is pretty clean. Uh my my desk is pretty clean as well. Uh I, I guess I, I just try to keep clean. I'm like clean guy.
0: Are you O C D have you got some O C D tendencies?
1: No, I, I think I just realized that uh there's there's a correlation between being clean, organized, and efficient. Mm-hmm. Uh and I, I just have so many balls up in the air at any given time that if I'm not organized, uh life just gets very stressful for me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's a good awareness to have. Do you have a favorite swear word? Shit. Shit! Yeah,
1: favorite, movie. shit
0: yeah. favorite movie. Favorite
1: uh, movie. You know, I'm a real estate guy, so Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross is probably uh, the cult classic.
0: Oh, cool! I, I've not watched that.
1: Oh, uh, you, as, as a real estate guy yourself, you need to watch what Glenn the Gary, hell? Glenn Ross. I feel
0: like okay. Yeah. I feel like I, I I messed up there. Okay, favorite tune.
1: Uh, I, I've got a pretty eclectic, uh, music style. So I'll listen to the, to absolutely anything, mm-hmm. uh, anything under the sun. I, nothing really jumps out as my favorite song, but I'll listen to anything.
0: Favorite Netflix series that you've, uh, tapped into during COVID lockdown.
1: Uh, you know, believe it or not, I don't watch uh, a lot of TV. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I even have gotten through a full series on Netflix, uh, over the, over COVID here, uh probably my favorite show that i've seen recently would be breaking bad uh, hmm. i finally got through that uh, a few months ago uh, and, and i love that one so I, I think that's on netflix now
0: that was uh that was a, uh, a that was actually a good series if heaven exists what do you want to hear god say when you get to the gates uh welcome welcome it's <laughs> awesome and chad what are you grateful for today
1: uh, I'd say family. Uh, I, I, I'm. I've got a wife and two young kids, and they they give me a lot of leeway to pursue uh, passions and and work hard. Uh, I, I'm I'm very grateful for my family.
0: You know, gratitude is such an important part. Today, I'm always grateful for the guests that I have on my show and the platform that the Everyday Millionaire podcast uh, allows me to have these great conversations and interesting conversations. And I'm incredibly grateful uh, today. What showed up for me is the rain team, my executive team and my team overall. Uh, None of this happens without a whole bunch of amazing people uh, around me. And uh, so I'm very, very grateful for my team. Chad, thank you so much for your time, your energy and your contribution to today's show.
1: My pleasure, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at r-e-i-n canada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick O.